What's up, church? Glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, just a couple days ago, I was thinking that I wouldn't be here with you this morning because uh, it's been a rough week for the Pinkerton family. The uh, stomach flu has like swept through. Um, Kate and my middle son, Wes, they're stronger than the rest of us, I guess, so they didn't have an issue. But it all started on Tuesday. Toby wakes up. He said, he's my kindergartner, says he's sick. And you know, as a parent, I'm sure most of you guys are like this too. You're like, no, you're not. You're good. You're going to school. And so I take him to school, and he was complaining about it the whole way. I'm like, dude, you're, you're all right. And uh, it wasn't like an hour later, the school's calling us because he had puked all over the classroom. And felt bad. But in my mind, I'm going, better there than at my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry, teachers. But, uh, and he was all embarrassed about that. And like, he was like, I can't, you know, and I'm like, dude, it's all right. It's like a rite of passage as an American. Every kid's got their puke at school story. Um, I did mine in third grade doing jumping jacks. The teacher shouldn't have had us doing jumping jacks. And uh, that, like, put me over the edge in the classroom. But anyway, um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, after Toby got sick, then later that day, my, my daughter, Lizzie, my two-year-old, she got sick. And uh, it's kind of, it's interesting this, the difference between your kids, right? Like, Toby, he's very polite when he throws up. And uh, they, they both go to mom. They're trained that way. And... Uh, <laughs> Toby, he'll go to mom and he'll say, hey, hey, mom, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I puked over there, you know, and, uh, and then got to clean that up. But then Lizzie, my daughter, she's never thrown up before. And so this is a new experience for her and she thinks she's dying and she doesn't know what's going on with her body. And so she like throws up and then she like, she's a little dramatic. She like collapses and then she rolls around on it. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it was a mess, okay? Pinkerton House has not been great this week. And then on Friday, I got it. It hit me like a ton of bricks, and it was just me and uh, in my toilet hugging that for like hours and is whatever. It's, but, it, but it's done. It's over. It lasted for 24 hours, I guess, yesterday. I felt way, way better. And today, I feel back to normal, all right? So if you get it, you know you only got 24 hours and you're good to go, so... That's the good news, I guess. I don't know why I'm telling you guys that, but uh, I just felt like I had to get it off my chest. A little frustrated. Um, the, uh, so you know my message is like written with my literal blood, sweat, and tears this week. So it's probably not going to be my best work, but it is what it is. Um, the, uh, like AJ was saying, Easter is this weekend, which is super exciting. Again, uh, we have four services. We have two on Saturday and two on Sunday. And uh, just want to reiterate just so we're all on the same page, what AJ was saying. Uh, this is the best time of year to invite people to church. It's Easter and Christmas, and so we want to encourage you to use that um, to invite them here. Uh, it, the, where people, where the people in our lives and in our community, um, where they end up for eternity, it should matter to us. Like, it should bother us that we don't know. It should bother us that maybe, you know, that they don't go to church or they, you know, there's a good chance they don't have a relationship uh, with Jesus. And so use that, you know, let that bother you, that's good for you, and invite them to church, take that step out, and, um, and even if it's awkward or whatever, and you're just worried about, you know, don't let that hold you back. Invite them to church, and I guarantee you next week, they will be faced with the question of whether they want to start a relationship with Jesus or not. You can't answer that for them, you can't make that decision for them, but at least you can put that out in their face, okay? So that's what we're going to do next week. Um, we got a great set of music, our musicians are awesome. Uh, we got, it's, that's going to be awesome next Saturday and Sunday for sure. And we even got some creative elements from our creative people. I don't know if it's all going to fit together, but we're trying.
trying, we're working on it, and, uh, and the message will probably be okay. So um, there's that. It'll be the worst of, of the, all the stuff. But, um, but yeah, so last few weeks, we have been talking about Jesus' last walk to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's not, actually, he's told his disciples many times, he's saying, hey, I'm going to go, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand what he's talking about. He's not in a huge hurry. He's stopping in town after town after town, and village after village after village, and he's teaching. And we've kind of tracked him a little bit throughout the last few weeks. Uh, he started off in this area called Perea, which was northeast of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan River. The Jordan River just kind of runs north and south. And, um, and so he's there. We talked about some teaching that he did. And then he crosses the Jordan River, and he, uh, he heads into this city called Jericho, which is about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. And in Jericho, he heals a blind man. He spends an afternoon with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And a lot of people don't like that. And, and then he does some teaching there as well that we've looked at. And then last week, we talked about how he traveled from Jericho about 16 miles to uh, this town that's kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem, only about two miles away from Jerusalem called Bethany. And Bethany, he has a kind of a large dinner with, uh, with this guy named Lazarus, who incidentally, just a few weeks earlier, he had literally raised from the dead, right, which was crazy. And kind of that's what started everything, and that's what really pushed all the religious leaders over the edge, and uh, they don't like that. And that's kind of where we left off last week. Last week, we left off in John chapter 12. It says, then a large crowd of Jews, they learned that he was there. Where's there? Bethany. And they came not only because of Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus. Of course they did. All right, who doesn't want to see a guy who was dead, you know? So they want to see Jesus. They're also interested in seeing Lazarus, who now has been back alive, I guess, for the last couple of weeks. And uh, a lot of these people, I mean, people could not deny what happened. The one, Lazarus was the one that he had raised from the dead. It says, but the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason why many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. I bet they were, right? When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which is what we talked about last, last week, I mean, this is something that was undeniable. It's something that nobody could say, oh, well, you know, th- no, he, didn't, he was not actually dead, or this didn't happen. Lazarus had been dead for four days. The whole crowd that was there, when Jesus does this huge, like, sign in front of them, or this huge miracle, uh, they're, they're the people that, they're the same people who had been to Lazarus's funeral days before. I mean, he was dead. And he, Jesus stands outside of his tomb and he says, hey, come on out. Well, when that happens, all these people start believing in Jesus and everybody's just like, okay, well, I mean, oh, I'm, I'm watching this with my own eyes. I cannot deny that this is actually what's happening. Jesus has to be from God and Jesus has to be God. Well, the religious leaders don't like that. You know, Jesus and the religious leaders, they were always kind of pushing back against each other. And uh, the religious leaders, they're, uh, they're not, uh, not the happiest people. And so not only now do they want to kill Jesus, but they also want to kill Lazarus as well. And then in the next verse, it says, the next day. So um, when Jesus has this dinner with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they're also there. Um, that's on Saturday before Jesus' death. The next day would be Sunday, which would be Palm Sunday. It's what we are celebrating today. And it says, the next day on Sunday, when the large crowd that had come to the festival, that's the Passover festival, this huge festival that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for, um, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, wherever Jesus went, 
All right, crowds gathered around. People wanted to see what Jesus was going to do next. People wanted to hear what Jesus was going to say next. And they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for this Passover festival, which was this huge festival that we've talked about uh, that uh, the Jewish people had been celebrating for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It actually points back to the Old Testament, back when to Moses, and God uses Moses to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt, um, which we call, which they call the Exodus. They let him out of Egypt, and uh, and God tells them to celebrate this Passover, so or to celebrate this festival called Passover. And so that's what they're doing. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, there's there's people from all over the world. Jewish people from all over the world are also coming to Jerusalem for this festival. And as Jesus begins his two mile walk to Jerusalem, uh, he does something really odd. Um, which uh, Jesus did so often. He gathers a couple of his disciples, two of them, and uh, he tells them to go into the village ahead of you. And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, and why don't you just uh, bring it to me? It says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, hey, the Lord needs it, and uh, we'll send it back here right away. So uh, he, he sends these disciples out. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why he's doing this. I'm sure they find this really, really weird. And they're just like, okay, you want us to go get, like, not even a full-grown donkey. You want us to go get a colt of a donkey, so a really small donkey. And, uh, and we've been walking for weeks and, you know, for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And now for the last mile and a half, you want us to, you know, to grab this animal, like, what's, they just don't understand what's going on. And so kind of the context to this whole situation is that the Jewish people have been waiting for, a, uh, for what the Old Testament called a Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Messiah is just a word for Savior. And so uh, the Old Testament, God had promised the Jewish people that, hey, I'm going to send someone who's going to fix everything. He's going to make everything right, and he is going to save them. And so everybody, when they read that in the Old Testament, they're all thinking, Politically, right? Remember at this time, uh, the Jewish people, uh, Israel, is owned by dominant Rome, who's an impressive foreign government who did all kinds of terrible things uh, to the Jewish people, really people all over the world. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're thinking, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to ride in. Even the disciples are thinking this. We're going to ride into, on, into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be crowned king. We're going to get our nation back. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to be the dominant nation, you know, the, the dominant new kid on the block. We're going to be here. There's nothing anybody else uh, can do, and Jesus will be our king. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking they're going to get some, like, you know, royal advisor spot in the new kingdom. It's going to be awesome. They're going to get, you know... They're going to have some, you know, a place of authority. And that's what the Old Testament kind of hints at. But time and time again, in the Old Testament, it's saying God will send a Savior. And the Bible even gives, gives different signs saying, hey, this is what he's going to look like. For example, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Right? He's going to grow up in Egypt. He's going to be born of a virgin. All these things that actually took place. And one of the signs, 400 years earlier, uh, we see in the Old Testament that the king, this Messiah, is going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. Now, for us, we think of this, we don't really think much of it because we don't ride donkeys much, and, you know, uh, probably nobody in here rides a donkey ever, and, uh, and so we don't quite understand this, but this was super weird, all right? That's why it's a sign. It's not a normal thing, all right? Most people don't, you know, didn't ride donkeys all that much, but if you were going to ride a donkey, it wouldn't be like a baby donkey, 
Okay, think about it. Like, donkeys aren't that big. Your feet are, like, dragging the ground. Like, it's, you know, it's weird. Like, this is, this is the reality of it. And so this was very, very unique. Like, a king riding in on a horse, yeah, we get that. Okay, that makes sense. But a donkey is like, eh, I don't know. And then a, don- a colt of a donkey is like, wait, what? It's a, it's a sign. Even the disciples, they don't recognize it at this point. And so the disciples, when Jesus tells them to do this, they're like, this is weird. But you're Jesus. And so we're going to do it. Okay, let's go find, maybe, you know, we don't know what's going on. And so in the next verse, it says, so they went. And they found a colt outside of the, in the street, just like Jesus said there would be. And then it was tied by a door, and they untied it. And sure enough, some of those standing there said to him, they said, hey, what are you doing? Untying that donkey. It'd be like, if, you know, maybe it was modern day, Jesus would say something like, hey, could you go, and there's going to be, a, a, you know, a car sitting on this street parked there. Could you go ahead and grab that car and bring it to me? And if someone asks what you're doing with that car, just say, hey, you know, uh, the Lord needs it, and everything will be good. You know, it's, it's awkward. And so they're untying it. They're like, people are watching us. They're looking at us, you know. And then, sure enough, someone says something like, what are you doing with that? Are you, why are you taking that, that donkey? And they're like, and, uh, and I'm sure they probably start in on like, well, you know, you know you've heard of Jesus, right? Jesus is asking us to, to take this to him. We don't know why, you know. And then one nudges the other. He's like, no, remember what Jesus told us to say, All right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Lord needs it. And the guys are standing there, they're like, okay, yeah, all right, you take it. That's totally fine. And they're like, that worked. All right, Jesus knows what he's doing. And so they answered him just as Jesus has said. And so they let him go. And they're okay with that answer. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And then all the crowd that's all around Jesus, because there's always a crowd around Jesus as he was out in public and doing his thing. He says, many people, they spread their clothes on the road. And the others, they spread leafy branches like palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, and they cut from the fields. It says, those, they went ahead, and those who followed, they all shouted. They shouted, Hosanna, which just means save us. They're like, save us. This is it. Again, these guys are all got politics in their mind. They're all thinking, save us politically. Bring our kingdom back. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, this is it. This is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for for so long. We're so pumped. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Israel is back. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So everybody is excited. Everybody is pumped. I mean, it is a party. They are ready to crown Jesus as king. Have you ever got caught up in the moment? In like a celebratory moment, like something really, you know, crazy happened, and you're like, you know, all going crazy. I remember uh, I went to school in, in uh, Virginia, uh, Liberty University, and, there were, and I'm a huge Buckeye fan, and so college football season, especially in, in high, or college, I mean, it was like, you know, every Saturday, it's me and the TV. Like, I got a date with the TV, and my friends were all there, and especially to watch the Ohio State games. And, um, and on campus, what was cool about being, like, not in Ohio was there's like, you know, maybe 30 Ohio State fans on, you know, there's probably more than that, but 30 like diehards of us on, on campus. And so whenever we see each other, even if it'd be across campus and we're wearing our, our Ohio State colors, you know, or our shirt or whatever, you know, every, it, like from across campus you'd hear, oh, wait, and you'd be like, oh, yo, you know, all the time. All right, you don't get that here in Ohio, which is kind of sad, but uh, it's because everybody, well, <laughs> not everybody, but uh, all the good people, you know, we're all... We assume everybody's good, right? Um, anyway, 
But uh, where was I going with that? Um, so there was this guy uh, that we, I used to always watch the games with. There's a few of us, uh, good friends, but there's this one guy who was always there. I don't even know his last name. We just called him Buckeye Dan. I think I've told you about Buckeye Dan maybe before. Buckeye Dan, I don't know anything about him except for he's an Ohio State fan, and we called him Buckeye Dan. And I miss Buckeye Dan so much. Um, but what we would do is uh, I remember watching some tough games, like games against like Penn State and stuff like that, where uh, it was like a miracle that we won back in the trail prior days. And, uh, and we, you know, we'd win, and we'd be super excited. Everybody's like jumping up and down. I'm like jumping up and down, hugging Buckeye Dan. I don't even know Buckeye Dan, you know? And so we just get caught up in the moment. And, and the honest truth is, like, we didn't win anything, all right? We just sat there. We had nothing to do with it. They won. The guys on the field won. We are just watching. See, I, choose to root for the, I chose to root for the Buckeyes, and so I join in the celebration. You kind of just get caught up in everything. And it's like we think we won the world, but we didn't actually do anything. See, that's kind of what these people are doing. These people, they think they won, but they haven't done anything. I mean, they think they found their king, but they don't know what's going on. They don't know the Bible good enough. They don't know what the deal is, and they're just getting caught up in the excitement. See, just a few days later, what's crazy is that these same people, it's the same crowd, these same people are chanting, kill him in the streets. Just made me think about something this week. Do you, um, you know, just thinking about it, but th these people are the extreme example, but do you praise him with your mouth on Sunday, but betray him with your life all week? Do you do that? I mean, do we sit here on Sunday mornings? I mean, we all do this to an extent, okay? So if the answer is no, that's a total lie, okay? Don't lie to yourself, all right? But, um, you know, we, we all do that to an extent, but, you know, we sit, we sit here or stand here on Sunday mornings, and we, we sing, you know, praises, which is good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying, you know, that's something we should be doing. Uh, but uh, we praise him with our mouth on Sunday, but then we betray him with our life all week. Like, our life doesn't show it. Like, we go back to work, and we both go back home, and just, we go kind of back into our routine, and we do the same old thing. Where people around us, they don't know that we're a Christian. They don't know that we have any type of relationship with God. And, you know, because we don't let it show. Our life doesn't match up. See, we all do that to an extent. By the way, that's why we need it saved. That's why we need saved. Because we're all messed up. We don't need saved from political freedom like these people thought. We need saved from eternal freedom or for eternal freedom. And so the crowd, which is, by the way, is so much better. And so the crowd's going wild. The religious leaders, on the other hand, are ticked. I mean, the crowd's going, Team Jesus, Team Jesus, yeah, we're all, we're, all, we're, all, we're, all, we're all rooting for you. The religious leaders, they're super upset. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, again, there's many people who want to see him. There's many people who want to hear him. The religious leaders, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. And at one point, he's talking to the crowd, and Jesus tells them a story. He says this in Mark chapter 1. He says, he began to speak to them. In parables. Now, who's them? That, that is this, he's, he's talking to the whole crowd. The whole crowd is a mix of people. He's got the religious leaders there and, like, these, you know, kind of people who are ultra-religious people. And then you also got the kind of the normal everyday people. They're all in the crowd. Everybody's listening to him. And he begins talking to them in parables, which, again, we've mentioned, we've talked about parables here recently. Parables were stories that Jesus told to teach, stories that Jesus told to make a point. So Jesus starts off the story. He says, hey, guys, uh, picture this. 
A man planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, he dug out a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers, and then they went, and then he went away. And so he starts off this story, and immediately, I think the religious leaders, they totally recognize where, you know, Jesus is getting this. He's actually borrowing this exact story. Actually, it's not necessarily exact. It's very, it's different, but it's very similar. He's borrowing this parable or this story from the Old Testament, right? It's a story that was told by the prophet in the Old Testament, this guy named Isaiah. And uh, when Isaiah tells the story, it's really a dark, dark time in Israel's history. God is not happy with Israel. Israel has completely left God and are doing whatever they want and are worshiping all these fake gods. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible, terrible stuff. And so the story that Isaiah tells, it kind of goes like this. Isaiah says, hey, God's the owner. Picture this. God is an owner of, and, uh, and the vineyard, or Israel, is the vineyard. And so the owner, God, plants the vineyard, okay? He creates Israel, and he, he makes it real nice, and he gives them a good place to stay. I mean, he puts up a fence, a wine press, a tower. I mean, he goes over and above. He puts a bunch of creativity into it. He puts a bunch of work into it. He puts a bunch of thought into it. And so because of that, the owner expects good grapes. That makes sense. But then Isaiah says, but the grapes are rotten, they're not good grapes. And so the owner, you know what he's going to do? He's going to let that vineyard go. And he's hinting towards, at this point in time, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah's hinting towards saying, hey, Babylon's going to come in and he's going to take you guys over. Right? Because you guys have completely left God. And so my guess is as soon as these words leave Jesus' mouth and Jesus starts talking about a vineyard and an owner and just, you know, building a wall and a tower and just all this stuff, I mean, the religious leaders are like, okay, all right, we know where you're going with this. We know our Bible. All right, you are talking about us. We get it. God's the owner. Israel's the vineyard. We totally understand what's going on. He has the religious leaders' attention, and the everyday crowd, I mean, they're there listening too. Right? They might not know Isaiah. They might not have their Bible completely memorized, but, uh, but they know the situation. The situation is super familiar because this is something that happened all the time. And I'm sure even in the crowd, there's people that are going, oh, yeah, 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 that's me. I'm a tenant farmer. Okay, yeah, I totally understand what's going on here. Oh, yeah, I got land. I, have, I rent out my land to others. I'll, I'll, you know, that, that, that sounds like my situation. See, back then, if you owned land... You could hire farmers to farm the land in exchange for some of the produce. Sometimes it'd even be like up to 50% of the crops you could get back because it's your land. It's a very, very familiar deal. But in this case, this was a bigger deal because not only did the owner just have a vineyard to rent out, but the owner planted an entire, you know, he planted it himself. Uh, he built a fence around it. He built the wine press, which is how they made, you know, grapes and grape juice and wine. And uh, he even built a tower. And so he builds this, like, super, super nice place. Like Jesus is trying to point out. He's saying, hey, this is over and above. He's put a ton of work into it. He puts thought into it. He's super creative. And then he leases it out. The next verse he says, at harvest time, of course, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect. Right? He sends a servant to the farmers saying, hey, all right, it's time for you guys to pay up um, on the agreed amount. Let's do what's fair. And, uh, and so he's trying to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. So not only do the farmers refuse to pay, but they beat the servant as well. And so everyone in the crowd, they're looking at this and they're hearing this story. They're just like, what? <laughs> well, you can't do that. I mean, well, that's messed up. All right, have you ever had someone promise you, you know, one thing and then they don't pay up? I mean, that ever happened to you? 
Okay, I'm pretty sure this happened to all of us. Um, it's super annoying. Uh, but imagine how that went for the owner, okay? This servant gets back home, and the owner's like, all right, all right, where's my, you know, where's my crops or produce or my money or whatever that might be, have been? And, uh, and the servant, the worker's just like, oh, yeah, I don't have that. And the owner's like, what? You know, why, wh- where'd it go? Why don't you have it? What do you mean you don't have it? And the guy's like, they didn't give it to me. They actually beat me. You see, my face is all messed up. You know, and the owner's, you know, and the, but the owner has a lot of workers, okay? So he goes against the bigger guy. The Bruno, the Bubba, the Diesel, the Gunther, you know, whatever that guy might be. And he gives them another chance. And so again, he sent another servant to them. And they hit him on the head. This is actually an equivalent of like a slap to the face. Kind of like the Will Smith slap, actually, ironically. Like identical to that. So they slapped him on the head and they treated him shamefully. Says then he sent another And they killed that one. And he also sent many others. Some they beat and others they killed. So here's the owner. He's given these people chance after chance after chance. And then in a shocking twist that Jesus Jesus did also often, the farmers are getting worse and worse and worse. Right? The farmers don't take their chances. They refuse every chance they're given until they kill one of his servants. And so the crowd that they're listening, they, I mean, they just can't believe that this would happen. And maybe some of them are even in the crowd. They're yelling for justice. Right? Maybe they're standing there going, hey, these farmers deserve to die. Hey, that's messed up. Now they're committing murder. Like they've killed multiple people. They've beat others up. They're, not re- they're refusing to pay. And so the people are probably all thinking the exact same thing. Why isn't the owner doing something? Why? Does the owner keep giving them chance after chance after chance? But Jesus is not done. In the next verse, he says, he still had one to send. I remember the owner represents God here. It says, a beloved son. Now, this word beloved, it's not just like, you know, I love ice cream and I love my cat and my dog or Buckeyes. You know, it's it's not that. All right, this is like a deep love. Okay, this is this word in the Greek, it means, it means deep love. He says, I still have one to send, someone who I really, really, really love a lot, someone who means so much to me. And so finally he sent him, it's his son, finally he sent him to them saying, surely they will respect my son. And at this point in the story, I wonder if most of the people are like, don't do that. <laughs> All right, don't, don't send your son. Like, think about it. If I were, imagine like, I don't know, if I was a principal at a high school and I was, you know, in my office having lunch with Kate one day or whatever, um, the, uh, and, and I get a call or, you know, whatever, however that works, on the phone, and there's a fight in the cafeteria, okay? There's some guys fighting in there. And so what do I do? I send a teacher in there to go break up the fight. But those kids, they beat up that teacher, and then I get another call, and I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll send the assistant principal in. So the assistant principal goes in, they beat up the, assist, the assistant principal. So then I go get, like, the, the police officer or the security officer or whatever. I send that person in. They beat up that person. The last thing I'm going to do is say, hey, honey, could you go, you know, try to <laughs> break that fight up? I'm not going to do that, right? Like, Kate's a little feisty, but, you know, I just, uh, this, this is not going to, it's not going to happen. But, uh You'd almost expect this not to end well. And so the whole crowd, I mean, they know where this is going. They're just like, whoa, this is not good. But he still sent his son. He says, but those ten of farmers, they said to one another, they see his son coming down the road. They see him far off, and they said, hey, this is the heir. All right, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance 
will be ours. See, back then they had this law that uh, if, uh, if you didn't have any sons or daughters or anything and you died, the inher- your like, land would actually go, your inheritance would go to the people who are part of the land or people who are, um, who are occupying the land, which in this case would be these farmers. So they see something, they're like, hey, we can get more power. Okay, this will help us up. This will build us up if we kill this guy. It says, so they seized him and they killed him and then they threw him out. They don't even bury him. They don't give him a funeral. They don't do anything like that. It's, they're so much more disrespectful. They just throw him out onto the ground. And Jesus asked them a question. And this question is really pointed towards the religious leaders, but he's asking the whole crowd. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He's like, what should this guy do? You Answer me, what should this guy do? And what he's doing here is Jesus was so, so, so good at this. He is forcing the crowd to think, especially the religious leaders. He's putting these guys on the spot. And I'm sure they understand what he's doing. At least the religious leaders do. And Matthew actually records for us what somebody says. Somebody in the crowd, they just kind of blurt out. They say, hey, um, I know, I know, Jesus picked me. Okay, Uh, he will completely destroy those terrible men. They told him. And somebody else says, and, and they will lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. They're saying, hey, they're going to go to somebody else. The, he, the, you know, this owner is going to come down and he's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring justice. And Jesus responds in verse 9, back to Mark. He says, he will come and he will, you're right. He will come and he will kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. He says, haven't you read this scripture? And now he quotes a piece of Psalms. He says, remember the scripture? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, Jesus, he's pointing back to something that King David wrote in the Old Testament. He's constantly connecting the Old and the New Testament. See, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, you guys are rejecting me, but you don't understand. I am the most important piece. I'm the cornerstone. You're rejecting the most important piece. If some of you guys, you don't understand what the cornerstone is. Okay, that's the, it's the, you know, the corner of the foundation that you start everything off of. It's super important. All right, th- think of it as this. It's the player who gets cut from the team, who, but who's about to become the star of a new team, who's about to win the championship. All right, that's, that's Jesus. See, he's the most important piece. See, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing back. He's like saying, hey, remember that story that you've all learned from when you were a kid back in Isaiah where the landowner is God and the vineyard is Israel and the tenants are the non-believing Jews, you know, a lot of you know, the religious leaders and, and the servants are the Old Testament prophets. See, what Jesus is pointing out, he's saying, hey, you have rejected the messengers of the owner. And God has given you chance after chance after chance after chance. And he sent person after person after person. That's what the whole majority of the Old Testament is. It's prophet after prophet after prophet begging the Jewish people to do the right thing, begging the Jewish people to get it right. And the Jewish people as a whole chose to reject him. See, God's prophets were rejected by the very people claiming to be obedient to God. See, that's usually how it goes. It's religion. We get all sucked in to religion and doing all these good things and, uh, and you know, all this stuff that really makes us feel good. And, uh, I mean, the whole Old Testament, I mean, think about all the people that, that were rejected. Think about all of God's people that God sent to us as, you know, us as humans, I guess. And, 
that came down and were like, hey, you need to, you need, they're constantly pointing us back to God. I mean, you got Samuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all these guys, and many of them were killed. Some of them didn't even get a book. You got Elijah and Elisha and even like John the Baptist who had just been killed just a few years earlier. And so you get this picture of like God up in heaven saying, all right, you're next, all right, you're in, all right, next guy up, okay, you go, okay, you try. And he keeps sending and sending and sending and sending. And even the author of Hebrews describes the Old Testament prophets like this. He says, hey, others experience, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, he says, they experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. He says, they were stoned and they were sawed in two. That's actually Isaiah who we quoted. The whole story is kind of Jesus took from. Sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, and they were destitute and afflicted and mistreated. Then he says, they, the world was not worthy of them. And they wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. See, some they beat, some they killed, until finally God sent his son, Jesus. And what's crazy about this whole story is Jesus is telling them this week that he's, you know, just days before he's going to be killed, is that the people who are, he's telling the, the story to the people who are actually going to be killing him in just a few days. I mean, these are the people who are going to make this story come to life. These are the people who are going to make this story come true. And my guess is that the religious leaders get it. And back to Mark, verse 12. He says, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because all these people think Jesus is going to be the next king because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. And so they left him, and they went away. See, the religious leaders, they viewed themselves better than their ancestors because they were super good at following rules. I mean, they look down on anyone who isn't as good as they were. But they were about to do something so much worse. They were about to reject the Savior, this Messiah that God had been promising for hundreds of years, the, this person that, God, that they had been waiting for as a whole for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, just terrible. And we have the tendency to do the same thing. See, like the religious leaders, we view previous generations before us as backwards and sinful. I mean, think about it. Right now, as, we, as we're listening to this story, and we know what's about to happen, right, in the next week or so, but um, we view these religious leaders as, like, backwards and sinful, don't we? Like, we ask ourselves, like, what's wrong with them? On the flip side, we view ourselves as very advanced and enlightened. Like, oh, well, we would never, we would never do that. But what these guys are about to do as, as they kill Jesus shouldn't make us feel proud or smug. All right? It should make us feel humble and repentant because what we got to understand is the same heart that's in them is the same heart that's in us. See, we think to ourselves, oh, well, I'd never be a part. No. We are as sinful. Sin is a human problem. It's not one's worse than another. See, some of you, you totally get this because you didn't grow up in church. You became a Christian late in life, and uh, you know what I'm talking about because you know how bad you can be. Like, you've done things in your life that you are not proud of and that, that are, you know, that you're ashamed of, and you're like, and, and because of those things, I mean, you've come, to, you've come to Jesus because you know that you need a Savior. You know you're not good enough on your own. But others of us, you know, we grew up in church, and yeah, of course, we'll be the first to say, yeah, I'm not perfect, and I've, I've messed up, and 
And we've learned at like a young age how to like curb our sin, which is good. I'm not saying that's bad. But many times what that does is it creates like a blind spot to our sin. And it kind of puffs up our ego where we think, oh, well, I've never done that. I, I, oh, I'd never even thought about doing that. I would never do this. And we begin thinking that we are pretty good. And what we end up doing, and this is so tricky, is, is we start putting our faith in ourselves and in our perceived goodness rather than in Jesus' goodness. See, that's what religion does. I mean, religion, we talk about this all the time. Religion is just a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts of how you, you, know, you do all this good stuff so that maybe someday you can appease God and he will find favor with us and, and he will allow us into heaven. All right, religion is something that just makes us feel clean. Jesus never said, hey, you need to be a part of religion. That's not what Jesus is about. Actually, you know, Jesus, they constantly butt heads with religious leaders. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't need religion. Religion messes you up. You need a relationship with your creator, with me. It's one of those things. I remember um, years ago, I was in charge of a, um, a middle school summer camp. And uh, one of the hardest things about that was you can't get middle school guys to ever take a shower. You know, it's just, it's just how it is, all right? They don't, you know what they do instead? They want to smell good, okay? They, they know they stink, all right? They just get the axe can, and they just spray themselves all over with axe. And you'd walk into a cabin, and you're just like, you know, it just blows you away. And you're like, oh, even today when I smell axe, it like, you know, it like brings me back. I can't take it anymore. I'm like, ah, you know, get me out of this cloud. Um, but what's funny about that is, you know, it's still there. Like, the stink is still there. It didn't take that away. It didn't take care of the problem. All it's doing is covering it up. That's what religion does. It covers us up. We think we're doing pretty good. We look at ourselves, we're like, wow, look at me. I'm a lot, you know, I'm pretty clean. I'm way cleaner than that guy. I'm way cleaner than this person. But our sin is still there. See, that's what the people in the crowd are doing. The religious leaders, they are blinded by their own religion. They're blinded by their own good rules. And everyone else is getting just caught up in the excitement. And both will play a part in Jesus' death. Later that night, one of Jesus' own disciples that had spent three years with him ends up sneaking out. He goes to the religious leaders and he says, what will you give me? What can you do for me if I give you Jesus? It's the beginning of a bad week for the disciples, at least. Great week for us, or at least how it ends for us. And it's all going to start going down. We'll get into that on Easter weekend. But I just want to remind you, and I feel like I talk about this all the time. I just want to remind us, don't put your faith into your good stuff and into your religion. Put your faith in him and only him and nothing else. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And Lord, you did not have to come and save us, but you did anyway. You don't have to love us, but you do anyway. God, it's our tendency as humans to feel like we're pretty good. It's only because we're comparing ourselves to others. We're not comparing ourselves to you. And God, please help us to stop that. God, we need you. And we need what you did for us.
And we thank you so much for dying for us when you didn't have to. God, we ask that you would help us to remember that, help us to invite others, help us to remember our job as Christians, that we are to reach the people around us for you. Help us to do that this week as we gear up for Easter. God, we thank you for everything that you've given us. We thank you for this church. We ask this in Jesus' name.